Hello and welcome to Humans of Open Source, a podcast where we talk to the humans working in open source software and hear their stories. I'm your host, Sean Chen, and today I'm joined by the venerable Nico Matsakis, who has been a longtime contributor to the Rust project. We talked to Nico about what it was like to contribute to the Rust language early on, some of his fondest memories of working on the project, as well as what he does in his spare time when he's not working on Rust. So without further ado, let's head on over to the conversation. How are you doing today, Nico? I'm doing pretty well. It's coronavirus time, so got to keep that in context, but as days go, not bad. Yeah, you're you're located in Boston, right? Yes. Okay. So you made an interesting comment when you joined. You said you're using Google Chrome. I guess Let's one thing I was context. thinking... I had to, not all the time, oh, but I did to make this Google Meet work. I did launch it in Google Chrome. Yes, you're right. Yes, you're right. You're right. So I'm assuming uh, Google is not your default not my browser. Default, but I use it sometimes. Okay. Okay. But yeah, that, that I guess begs a bit of a, a question and we need some context for that as well, which is the, the stuff that's been happening with Mozilla. At least to my knowledge, you've been working at Mozilla for a while. I mean, to my knowledge, you're still at Mozilla. Uh, I actually was just checking your Twitter right before we got on the call to see if any updates had happened, but I didn't see anything. No, I'm still at Mozilla. Yeah. And I've been here since 2011. So it's been a while. Yeah. I, I just saw Lynn join Fastly. I don't know if she was the only one. It sounded like from her tweet that like a number of people who are working on Rust and WebAssembly have moved over to Fastly. And, and I saw that and I was curious, did that include you? Or was that like a bunch of the people at Mozilla who were working on Rust? Yeah, a number of people moved over. It did not include me. It was some who worked on Rust, but a lot of people focusing on kind of WebAssembly and other areas. I, I don't know the full set, actually. I think maybe some of the crane lift people, but they've been, yeah, so I... I I'm not that close to that, but it's pretty exciting for them. I think, I think everyone there is pretty excited and I'm curious to see what comes out of it. On that point, then it's a little bit nebulous to me what you do at Mozilla. Like, are you still doing stuff related to Rust or is actually your day-to-day not that related to Rust? Could you clarify that a little bit? I work on Rust. That's my one job duty is kind of do the things, do the things that I do on Rust. I mean, right now I'm spending a lot of time working through details related to the Rust Foundation that we've been talking about mm. a little bit, maybe not as much as I would like us to be talking about it. Sometimes it's hard to get information out and do the work at the same time. But the but I also spend a lot of time on like the, the Lang team, the language design team, compiler team. Mm-hmm. Just today is kind of my mentoring day, which means that I've kind of got these lined up calls where I meet with people who are working on projects and we spend like an hour on whatever problems they're encountering and I try to help them fix them. So range of stuff like that. Very cool. How many people at Mozilla then are like left to work on Rust? Because again, that's also a detail that's not very clear right now with everyone moving around and with the layoffs and all that stuff. So like, I'm, I'm assuming the number of people working on Rust and Mozilla has shrunk a lot at this point. Yeah, it's still shaking out, I guess, I would say. Hmm. The number of people has always been a hard thing to count because there were a certain number who worked directly on Rust, like myself, 100%. But then there were a lot of other people who participated in Rust kind of on the side or, or like 
I don't necessarily mean at home. Like Mozilla, one of the great things about Mozilla is that, you know, it's an open source upfront from the beginning company. So you could kind of spend some of your time on open source projects. That was never a big issue. But the point is it wasn't one of their like direct goals necessarily. Just they did some supporting work. And some of them, most of them are still doing it, which is awesome. From either their new employer or or wherever they're doing now. So yeah, I don't exactly know the answer. I mean, some there are still some folks at Mozilla, I'm sure, who are contributing, but we've definitely lost in terms of full time people. I think I'm the only one at this point. Oh wow! To to segue off of that, so you said you've been working there since 2011. Like how how did you end up landing this position there? What was kind of your journey prior to that as well? Was kind of the origin story there? Well, that's a good question. I so. It's not that long. <laughs> I worked at a startup company for a while. So I went I went to MIT. I graduated. I worked at a startup company for a while. And then after that, I went to ETH Zurich, where I did my PhD. And that's a great place to go to school. Highly recommended if you have the option. Okay. Both it's a good school, but mind. Zurich is an awesome city. And I, while I was there, I did a bunch of different things. I had the kind of good fortune of working with my professor, Thomas Gross, who, among other things, gives his students a lot of range to explore stuff they want to explore. So I tinkered with PyPy and other projects, but I wound up doing type theory, which is really not what I expected. I had always been into compilers. At, at the startup I worked at, I worked on actually a compiler for XSLT, which Never heard of it, but okay. is an interesting language. At the time, it was very, very hot. It's... <laughs> It's a functional language for transforming XML documents. And what we did with it was everybody was sending XML purchase orders to one another. And so you could write XSLT scripts to like transform those purchase orders into other purchase orders and things like that and route them around your network. Actually, the, the product is still sold by IBM, which is cool. It's a cutpot. Anyway, the not, not many people really are into XSLT anymore, but <laughs> the... No, the other fun thing about it is you write it in XML syntax. So it's like really verbose. What was I going to say? Right, I lost my train of thought. Oh, yeah. So so I came in and I wanted to write a, a Python JIT compiler. That was like my, I thought, I'm going to do this as my PhD research. And then I, I quickly learned that, first of all, that was really, really hard. I hadn't fully appreciated just how complicated an endeavor that would be. And surprise, surprise, a lot of people had tried it before. I wasn't the first one to have this idea. And they had done a much better job than I had. And they had a lot of great ideas. And uh, so that's how it took me to the PyPy project was following a trail of, of like really smart people and, being, and learning stuff about how they were doing it. And after I spent a while there, I, I wound up kind of getting interested in, in some other things. And that's what took me to what I eventually did my thesis on, which was extending the Java language with some constructs to guarantee data race freedom. and I kind of learned about type theory and stuff like that, which going in, I thought, you know, that's, that's just like, who wants that? I just want to write Python code. <laughs> and so after that, I was looking around and, you know, Mozilla had this crazy project to write a new systems programming language that I was kind of interested in. And so I got in touch and I don't know, it all worked out. Some of those ideas from the thesis sort of made their way into Rust in weird different forms, but you know, it's a quite different in other ways. What 
what was the state of Rust at that point when you joined? I guess maybe the real question I'm asking is like, what was your first impression of Rust when you first encountered it? And what was it like? And how did it sell you, I guess? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. So there's, because I usually give a different answer than the one I'm going to give now. And then maybe I'll give my usual one. The, the state of Rust was in some ways very advanced. And that's not the answer I usually give. And I'll tell you why. But the, the, what I mean by that is that, like when I started, first of all, we had already passed the bootstrapping phase. So I never worked on the OCaml compiler, for example. Mm. And there had already been a fair amount of iteration. But what I really meant by advanced is that already then, I think you could see the kernel sort of product thinking. <laughs> like one of the things that Rust has always tried to do is to have a really nice user interface for the tools, you know, and that goes back. There in different ways. I mean, one of them, I think, like one of the original things that Graydon pushed is like you want to compile Rusty on your whole crate. You don't have to like write a make file that if you've used to C projects, you write some make file that compiles all the little dot C's and then you link them all together and there's like a boilerplate just to build anything, right? Whereas a Rust C, this is before Cargo, which made it another level, but you know, even then it was like you just run Rusty and your crate file and everything else it does. So little things like that, but also built-in unit tests and stuff like that. Like it was already kind of had a lot of niceties that you could imagine a language at that stage of its evolution skimping on. Oh, and the error message formatting, while not like we have it today, it was much more like a standard GCC, but it was already like better than most of the compilers I had built where I was too lazy to, to put in that effort, right? So people were using it as their tool and you could tell. On the other hand, this is my more usual answer. The language itself didn't really look a lot like Rust looks today. It, for example, it had a garbage collector. It was not memory safe, so it was easy to segfault it. Everybody knew that. It wasn't like a mistake. It was just we hadn't figured out how we were going to fix that problem yet. And it had a really different notion of threading and so forth. Like Rust now wound up exporting, kind of developing this core and putting almost everything else into libraries. But Rust back then had a much bigger core. So it had a, for example, threading was built into the language and as was, as I said, this garbage collector and there were these sigils and reference modes. This stuff gets less and less relevant. You know, it used to be everybody knew exactly what I was talking about, but I guess by now almost nobody does. But the first thing I did, like the very first thing I did was extend it to 64-bit because it used to be 32-bit only. And then we went on and made lots of various changes. But at some point we added the borrow checker and that was kind of my main contribution i guess up until that's an important that one yeah small one <laughs> and and even that we phased in over time right and one of the one of the really cool things that i think worked out well for us although it was a lot of labor was that we had a large code base like we had a whole compiler that we had written in rust and we had to make the borrow checker accept that compiler right like <laughs> so it, it couldn't require that much word or like it you know you could tell you would get to some functions like in the early version where it had a lot of it was more, less expressive than it is today we would hit problems because there were functions like you would turn it on with a flag and then there were like some functions we just couldn't find a way to write them or you had to write it was very awkward uh, how you wrote them and that's what led i think the first version of the borrow checker worked well enough but it it was missing the one crucial ingredient which was like it, it would basically prevent seg faults and it would detect 
when you might be modifying data that you had references to. But what we changed that really made it all fit together was we made it so that mutable references could not be aliased or shared. So that if once you have any mutable reference, you no longer have any reading access until that mutable reference is gone, except through that reference. That's like the now that's like the prime directive of Rust. But for a long time that was not how it was. And the side effect of that was that it kind of was this trade-off. You could make copies of your mutable references, which was convenient, but you couldn't do very much with them because you never were sure if somebody else was changing it through some other alias. And so a lot of things that now are super easy at that time required awkward workarounds, like swapping things to your local stack and stuff like that so that you knew they were not aliased. So that was a big change for us. And that was, it goes by many names, but Imhet Wama was the acronym that eventually stuck, <laughs> which came from. I'm not even going to ask what those letters were. I couldn't even catch that. It was like I M H T W A M A or something, which which came from a blog post that was like, imagine never hearing the phrase aliasable mutable again, which somebody somebody misremembered as imagine never hearing the words aliasable mutable again and made an acronym from. I think Patrick Walton, pretty sure. But anyway, that's that's really cool though that. From what you're telling me, the a big part of the story of Rust was initially having a bunch of things, like uh, a garbage collector, among other things you mentioned, and then eventually stripping those away until you got the core of the language that I suppose we're seeing today, right? Like that, more of that story of having kind of the, the confidence, I suppose, to strip away these things that maybe in a more immature language development team or something you know, you just have less confidence to strip that away and still be confident that what you're working on is still like a really powerful and useful language. So that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. It was scary sometimes. And <laughs> it's all, it all seems clear enough now, but at the time, like, I think I had to get pushed pretty hard in some cases, to, but eventually, like, I don't know, I was sad to lose the garbage collected types. <laughs> I still, I still want to explore what it means to integrate Rust with with a maybe not with a garbage collector, I'm. Le- I found that's not as not super vital, but I am interested. Although I, there are some cases where it would be really nice. But what I am really interested in is like integrating into JavaScript runtimes or other runtimes where you have a garbage collector. That's not as easy as I would like it to be in Rust today. I think compiler support for that would be really cool, and that same support could potentially let you write GC stuff if you don't mind, if you don't care about the runtime costs or whatever. But I don't think it'll ever be a dominant way of writing Rust. To kind of get back to the point I made earlier about, I kind of think of you as the the default benevolent dictator for life of Rust. I don't know if you see yourself that way. I don't even know if other people see see you that way. It probably varies by person to person, I would imagine. But you know, you've you've obviously been around Rust for a long time, and I think a big contributing part for it as well is also the blog posts that you write where you paint a very kind of cohesive vision for where you see Rust going, which is a very BDFL thing to do. <laughs> Maybe other people do this and I just don't read their blog posts. I suppose that's totally possible as well. And I just miss them and they fall through my my cracks. But that's kind of the impression that I have of you. I don't know. Do you, do you agree or disagree? Or do you have someone in your mind who you're more like, no, this is in my mind, the BDFL of Rust? So I don't agree, but it's not because I think there's another BDFL. And I you know, I've definitely been working on Rust a long time, and I do try to 
you know, write good blog posts and show what I'm share what I'm thinking. Although a lot of times it winds up going a different direction, and that's okay. That's actually been kind of one of the best parts I think of about Rust is sort of this blog post culture and the way that we we try to share as much as possible this way. But I mean, the reason I don't agree is that I think we've worked really hard to create a process that isn't reliant on any one individual. And of course, there are people who have more like reputation or influence and whatever else, just time in the project than others. But like we want one that's open for everyone to participate. And that's a big goal for us. And I think it's something that we can be pretty proud of, even though there's always so much we can do to improve it. It's actually one of my, like the last couple of years, it's been become one of my kind of passions about how can we reshape our procedures and just the way we work and to make it more encouraging and more inviting for people to contribute. And I mean that like in different ways. I mean, I mostly work on the compiler and language. So those are the things that I'm focused on, but just those two have very different modes of contribution right there, right? The compiler is usually much more about writing code, although there's a lot of stuff, a lot of ways to contribute to the compiler that don't involve writing code, like helping with the documentation, the Rusty dev guide, or working on the prioritization working group, which is a group that looks for, basically just helps us identify the bugs that really need to get fixed and like creates the agenda for the meetings and makes the compiler team function. Or there's another group that does bug narrowing. Anyway, there's a lot, there's tons of ways to get involved. So if you're interested, you know, you dear listener, we should, we should talk, but, but I've kind of gotten into this process also on the language team side around, especially the design and how we can do a better job. Like we have the RFC process, which I think has been great, but it has some challenges. Like a lot of times people will, I find the RFC process kind of begins a little late. People kind of come in with ideas when they've already shaped it into a full-blown proposal, but sometimes that proposal may be going in a direction that just doesn't make sense or like is proposing something that's really not on the roadmap for right now. And we wouldn't have the bandwidth to do. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it just means we have to sort of close it after someone put a lot of work into it. That can be kind of frustrating. And the bigger problem with what often happens is they get stuck in a kind of limbo. There's a kind of unbounded amount of work that can be opened in the form of new RFCs that just appear and only so much bandwidth to read them. And so sometimes they sit and we've been doing a big effort now of We've actually just just this week finished going over every open RFC and like coming up with some determination of what we're going to do with it. And but I'm trying to move to a process where we have proposals that are much lighter weight, where you can kind of come and say, I got this idea. And it's still, you know, you can explain it in a few paragraphs, you know, more if you like. Sometimes it's good to give more, but it doesn't have to necessarily be more. Just like, is this a direction that the Lang team is psyched about? Right. And in particular, is there somebody on the team or who's like really looking to become a member of the team and is kind of involved who will liaison for this and who will like sit down? And in that case, we can start a little Zulip stream. People can pack the RFC together. Right. And we can get the Lang team involved earlier on so that like we can make decisions before they get too far. And it's just a more of a collaborative process and less of a like, let me bring this idea and then get everyone to nitpick it process. And it's, a, I think it's working pretty well uh, so far. We've been doing it. We did this for the like FFI Unwind was one of the first ones. Safe Transmute is now in the RFC stage. It's this proposal to make transmutes that are safe. 
and we're working through that. And we're going to see how it goes. So we're probably going to tweak it. But, you know, in some ways it doesn't, if you're like reading RFCs, it doesn't change much, but I think it hopefully makes the authoring process more fun and supported and also helps us like direct our effort at exactly the things that we think are high priority and want to do. I think the obvious trade-off there is that I feel like this would be a much more involved process, right? Like maybe people will come in with more half-baked ideas and then people on the, on the lane team or, or whatever team, you know, have to take the time out of their schedule to say like, yeah, this is not going to work. This is why it's not going to work or, or whatever. Right. Like, is that, yeah, that's a danger. Some of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, one thing I'm doing is just making a point to stay on top of the ideas as they come in and not try like as part of a regular triage and not let them get too filled up. But one of the things I think that's totally valid is for us to say like, just the same way that you can write a lightweight proposal, we can write a lightweight projection and say like, say like this, this is interesting, but you know, why don't you take it to internals and like hash it out a little, bake it and come back. You know, we're not sure yet. And that seems fine. Right. And in fact, like that's, if I have any concern, there's a delicate trade-off where today, sometimes what happens is people come with some idea that's a little out of left field, usually like some nifty ergonomic improvement or something. And they kind of iterate on it whether it internals or in the RFC thread and shape a good proposal. And like nobody from the link team was involved at all. Right. And that's really cool because then you just kind of walk in and you read it. Oh, this actually is pretty good. Often like, you know, much better than it was when it started. And that kind of parallelization is really cool. And I don't want to completely lose that at the same time. That is also the thing that I was complaining about in the beginning, that sometimes it gets a little overwhelming when there's all this stuff that's been happening in parallel and, you can't stay on top of it, especially for the language which has to stay coherent and can't you don't just want to go adding things. Yeah. My follow-up to that is is it a sustainable amount of work for you to stay on top of all those incoming proposals? Like I imagine it's a lot of work. Is it actually like less work than I think? So far it's not so bad, but I think that might be okay. because people don't know about this procedure as much. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I think it will be okay, but it is it does require us to stay on top. The thing that's also hard is yeah. I'm more I'm more I'm less worried about the early stage proposals as I am about a, a thing that we've historically found really challenging is getting an idea from the RFC all the way to being stabilized in a sort of coherent, not, not coherent, but like deliberate fashion because it's partly because we're, we're really volunteer driven to such a large extent. And it's, I don't know what what will happen is people will write an RFC. They do a good design. The RFC gets merged. We open a tracking issue, but there's not a plan. It's not like we've, we have some, okay, now we'll allocate a, a resource to like go implement it. Right. It just kind of sits there until somebody implements it. And sometimes that's really fast. And sometimes, like my favorite example, RFC 66, still a good idea, in my opinion. Still, you can tell by its number. Now we're up to like thousands, you know, still not implemented, partly because it needs some more specification, actually. But it's, it's, a, it's an ergonomic improvement. If someone wants to, they should check it out. It might be good. Is it still relevant? It's, it's still relevant. The same problem still okay. applies. Okay. It's relatively minor, but, you know, it occurs. So that's what I want to stop. I would like it if we could move things through the process more smoothly. And it's not just implementing, it's also documenting, polishing, evaluating. That's a really interesting one. Like what do you mean? Once we I mean that once we get a feature into nightly, I would like some way 
to call attention to the fact that it's there more effectively and be like, hey, you who like are interested in inline assembly or whatever, try it out and give us your feedback because we're going to stabilize it. And what happens sometimes is we stabilize and then people try it out. And then it's it's a little late to make changes, right? But it's not it's not easy for people to know what are the features they should be evaluating because you go to Nightly and there's just a lot of features and some of them are half-baked and some of them work and some of them don't. So I would like to get us to the point where we're like publishing a monthly, my ideal world, the link team would publish a regular report and it would be like, here are two features to evaluate because we built, we want to stabilize them. So we're, we've created an evaluation period of like one month where people should try them out and submit reports in this Google form. I don't know. Let's go, let's go crazy. And then we'll review the reports and we'll like, you know, publish, we'll summarize and make some changes and maybe we'll stabilize. Maybe we won't. I don't know. I just started thinking of this half-baked idea of like, could you add a lint something like in the compiler itself that would notify like someone's using a, maybe the language feature that this new feature is kind of replacing or something. If there was a lint in there to say, Hey, you're doing this the old way. Could you maybe try that out this new way? And it's right in the compiler and it will tell you that. We do that sometimes. Like, I think we actually did that for LLVM. So we, we deprecated the old inline assembly and added the new one. And that was a helpful thing to get people to evaluate it. <laughs> that was kind of an easy case because we could literally just like tell you this thing is going to stop working. So you better try this new one. It's motivational. Usually it's not so easy to figure out. Like it's like a new feature that doesn't replace an old one or it's yeah something like that. And you don't want to bother people. They have their, they're working on their project. I don't know. I want to force them to go try out my new shaky feature if they're not interested in it. But then it's just a lint and they'll just be like, okay, whatever. I don't care about this. People take lints very seriously. That, yeah, <laughs> some people do. I don't know. Yeah. But it, we'll, we'll see. It's not the biggest problem, but it is an interesting problem. The main thing is the high, the high order bit, let's say, is I want to give people insight into what are the things that are moving what are the places they can join in if they want to make them move? And that's a little hard to tell right now, even for me. I can't imagine what it's like to tell if you're not closely following the Rust project. Yeah, for sure. I probably read, I think This Week in Rust gives a decent summary sometimes of some of the new features that are getting added. And I probably read that every couple of weeks, like not even every week. I'm not that avid of a follower. I get in my email inbox and then sometimes I'm like, okay, I feel like reading this today. I guess to go back to the point of the culture that the Rust community has kind of, I don't know where, where does culture come from, but no, that's not the question, but like, it's just so interesting to me. And that, that was kind of, kind of one of the, the impetuses for why even I think started this particular podcast was very much more of the culture around the Rust open source ecosystem. And just like, how it got to this point or like what were the the things that led to it or what were some of those really like important decisions in getting it to where it is right so like sometimes when i when i when i talk to people that are kind of like bdfl types like yourself i i sometimes ask about the the bus factor or again for context is how many how many developers of your projects need to get hit by a bus and then the project's basically dead i know it's very morbid <laughs> And, and God forbid this actually happened, but like, if you got hit by us, how, how confident would you be that, you know, Russ, I mean, I, I think Russ would survive for sure. But like, do you think things would change if you were, let's not even say hit by bus, if you just decided to retire from Russ tomorrow, 
Like, do you think that would affect the culture? I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. So obviously I think Russ would continue and there's, you know, the Lang team is there and there's like, there's no role that I think I can't be replaced at. I also think I do play pretty central role in some aspects where I would, I've actually been thinking a lot about actively trying to grow that, like to step, not, not step away from that, but to make sure that there are more people kind of bringing people into that, into the, some of those roles, especially around the, the Lang team. I think we're, we need to do a better job uh, having a good path in and, and growing just a little bit. It's kind of a tricky thing. You don't want to get too big because then it's discussions and things become just harder to manage. But but that's that's been a big thing for us. You know, we've we've talked, I'm thinking about some of the conversations we've had in the core team sometimes where we will think about things like one person teams, you know, as kind of a oxymoron in some sense, but a phenomenon that certainly happens. It's something that you should look for and try to improve when you can, right? It's because that's a that's a vulnerability. And so I think we've done a good job building out a really team-oriented culture. But I also think there are plenty of places where we could do a better job and we'll have to keep working at it. One thing I'm kind of excited about now is that we are starting to see more companies actively hiring up teams and that's going to bring a lot of challenges. But I think it's mostly going to be great, especially if... It means more people working full-time on rest. I think that'll take some of the load that's been a little unevenly distributed. And so, yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. I think we're at an exciting turning point. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, I find that exciting as well. I, I do also worry a little bit about if Russ got too big, if, you know, a lot of the culture that we've kind of built up at this point would become diluted. But I guess, you know, that that's a worry of mine, but we'll, we'll see. Where that goes, yeah. so, could happen. Yeah. <laughs> Again, conti- continuing on this this topic of culture. So I'm personally rather involved right now in in the air handling working group. So we're trying to basically work on improving rust air handling more. I mean, it's it's pretty stellar right now. Like I think one of the things that really sold rust to me. And made it just kind of like far and away my my favorite programming language was very much the the error messages and just like it just makes you feel like the compiler is is sympathizing with you and is like empathetic right and in Esteban and his Rust Conf talk put it really well if like you know the we want to eventually have the Rust compiler basically be like you know your guide or your 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 sifu basically so wait which are you involved in the error handling the the working group. The one that's relatively new that, that Jane is running. Yes. Okay. Okay. Kudos, by the way. <laughs> it's important work. Thank you. <laughs> and it's just like, where did this idea come from making error messages this helpful? I don't know if that makes any sense. I guess it's like, where where did... Maybe a better question is like... I can tell you that. Okay. <laughs> okay. I mean, it, it's, it was definitely intentional. It was not a mistake. It was not by accident. It was a combination of... There's a couple like different origin stories, I think, that I'm not sure. One thing I've noticed when I go back and try to remember, if I I like usually get it all wrong. I mean, the, the facts are right, but they're in the wrong order when I look at the blog posts or things that seemed very far apart turn out to be like two days later, I have this idea or whatever. But, but anyway, so I'll just tell them in no particular order. Like one thing is we knew always that any complex analysis like the borrow checker sort of lives or dies by how well you can 
explain it to people. And I think Esteban talked about this. I don't remember in the talk, but this uh, this philosophy of like it's great if people sit down and read the book first, but most of the time they're gonna they're gonna tinker with the compiler. So their your first chance to teach them and interact with them is the error message, and it has to be good enough that they don't run away screaming, <laughs> and like, maybe you can direct them a little to the book if it really needs to. But that's certainly our goal, right? There is a bunch of interesting academic research actually, which was somewhat inspirational early on. A lot of it happened in the course of, in the context of Racket, which is another programming language, kind of really variant of Scheme or, a de, I don't know, descendant of Scheme. And they did all these really cool studies over at Northeastern. I'm probably going to get the authors wrong. I think it was Felizen's group, maybe some others. So, for example, they were working with students and they went over all the error messages and looked at the vocabulary that they use, for example. And they found that it was actually really inconsistent. So they would go through and just adopt one term, like, is it function arguments or function parameters? Is it function signature or function prototype? I don't know. There's like different words people use and they, they would get consistent and they did cool things like they had control of the ID so they could color code the vocabulary word in the error message and color the actual like code version of that in the same color. So like the blue thing is the blue thing and stuff like that. And then they did ran studies and stuff. And so reading that was super inspirational for me. And I'm trying to remember if it was that. I think it was another paper that talked actually literally about this compiler as basically went to test if you phrase error messages empathically, sort of saying, I'm so sorry, I can't build your code, but there's this like problem versus, you know, syntax error, colon, da, da, da. And, and what impact that had on, on users, especially users of different backgrounds. And it was like measurable, right? People don't like being yelled at <laughs> by their tools. So those things were in the air when we were talking about error messages and so on, right? And I think Jonathan Turner did a lot of the driving to the new format of error messages that we use now. And that was a direct result of looking at both a variety of data, but like surveys, internals, stuff like that, and just sort of seeing what would be the most impactful thing you could do on a new user, right? an experience of a new user. And error messages was the answer. So then we sort of sat down and like brainstormed all the ideas and it turned into the stuff you have now. And that's kind of where Esteban came into. So it's really cool. That's so interesting. Just because I feel like not too many languages have this reputation of having awesome, helpful error messages. Like I think the only, the other one that comes up to mind for me is Elm. Yeah. I was going to say Elm. Yeah. Elm is the, the, the other one. And I there's think, a, yeah. And there's a really nice, and in some ways I'm jealous. I want to get a, if you look at the Jonathan Turner, the RFC that he wrote, I think it included this idea of dash dash learn, which was supposed to like, it was supposed to be more Elm-like where we kind of use your code to tell the sort of, sort of interspersed paragraphs of, of explanation, snippets of your code never came to pass, but maybe it will someday. I mean, isn't that what the error codes are kind of for? So you can look it up in the index. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's supposed to be like that, but, but inline and not generic, but with your actual code that seems like a really hard problem yeah that's probably why it hasn't happened yet (laughs) it's a great idea though it's a good challenge yeah that's cool but yeah like nothing else really comes to mind i don't know if you know of anything else as well i don't know i mean i i'm sure there is good work out there but i'm not sure i remember that with xcode they had some cool static analyses that were then explained with like overlays on top of your code and I always thought that was really neat and hope that someday we can adapt that kind of thing to explaining like borrow check errors. I mean, it's kind of what we tried to do with the current output where we 
use the ASCII text, but it's limited in what you can so, do. So next step, we need to write our entire whole Rust IDE just for that. Extend VS code, or I don't know. This this is where we we had talked about like what was the name of it? Nick Cameron did the prototype. This kind of like web based front end web. I forget what it's called, but the idea was well, why don't we run the compiler in a, and have it serve web pages instead? You know, and not necessarily an IDE, but like you can tab over to it and do your build, and then click and get like HTML rendered errors with more cool stuff. I don't know. I think it never caught on, unfortunately. Cool. I think let's 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 table the talk on culture. I know we talked about this for a while. So let's let's talk a little bit about your your let's segue a little bit from away from work. What are you? How are you spending your your days in quarantine right now when you're not working? Hmm. Hmm. So I was really annoyed <laughs> with coronavirus. Now, I do not have any actual problems in the scale of, no, I am not sick. And thankfully, uh, you know, and nobody in my family is sick. But I think it was, so yeah, if you'll forgive my, like, not actual problems, I'll tell you about my problems. So I like to play music. And I've actually been struggling for a while with, like, this challenge of work is so all consuming, you know, I'm really into rest. I love the community. I love working with people. And so it's easy to just give and give your whole life into it. Mm-hmm. And it's actually not really great. <laughs> so I've been, I've been working on how to resist that, you know, and having a family helps that kind of puts some boundaries that are hard to not uh, obey, but until you teach your kids rust. Yeah. My daughter used to say that she wanted to be a rust programmer, but she, she, she stopped saying that after she turned like three or something i was really sad about it you should be happy <laughs> too into it yeah it's fine whatever as long as she's happy i'm happy but um she no i wasn't gonna say oh right so one of the things i've been you love to do is play music so i went to this music camp and i was all excited about getting more into the local music scene and like finding people to play with and i, I like playing folk music and bluegrass music and stuff like that and unfortunately then quarantine started like literally like four days after I got back from this camp and I had all these people I was texting being like, let's go jam. So yeah, but I am, I have started singing lessons. I like to sing and that's been a new thing and it's fun. You can do them over zoom. It's like kind of convenient. It's kind of weird. It's not that weird. No, but well, what's weird is what's weird is that you can schedule it like at any time. And so for a while I had it like in the middle of the day and then, then it was, it was like I was doing a Zoom call about whatever, you know, the Lang team meeting or something. And then I turned that off and I'm like in the singing lesson. And that was, that was weird. So I moved it now so that there's like a gap because I just couldn't do that transition. Actually, it's so weird. I think, so you like to sing. John Jensett's girlfriend, they moved to LA for her to be a voice actress. Nell told me she also used to do voice acting oh really I, like it seems like there's some weird trend here where, where rust developers like to do something voice really that's really funny i had i didn't know i used to be a voice actress now that <laughs> so, yeah oh. I, I think she used to be a theater kid or something uh, okay cool i can see that yeah i like to sing i wouldn't say i'm a great singer although i i did study with a teacher who taught aerosmith wow okay okay <laughs> so you know very briefly for like for like weeks so you might you must have some potential if they agreed to take you on well no <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
he also taught many other people. <laughs> okay. <laughs> of all levels. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's really cool. I don't know. Any 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 other fun stuff you do? Now that it's just work, family singing lessons. Mm-hmm. I mean, that fills up a lot of time. I'm, I'm always hoping to do... One of the things that I feel sad about is that there are various projects that are not Rust, like Rayon, Salsa, Lollipops, that I never have enough time to do. And like, I spend like some time on Rayon. It's more, it's honestly more Ku Viper, Josh Stone, who does the lion's share of the maintenance. God bless him. I enjoy those things though, and I would like to find a way to, to fit more of them in. And I, I guess the truth is I really like coding. So I do still want to find like... <laughs> some ways to do a little more but not with all the pressure that comes with with work related or with rust related things but that's sometimes hard but you know apart from that been trying to enjoy walks <laughs> see nature did more camping I, I i had this in the notes and i forgot to end it up we ended up not talking about it but like my I, I usually tell people i talk to like what was the first time i got my initial exposure to each of them and for you it was your your blog post on rayon mm. what you wrote a number of years ago now and i just remember reading that and being like oh this is such cool work like and i remember thinking it was like oh man it was like just because you were like in the right place at the right time to have been working on rust at that early point where you had the opportunity to then build out something like the, the parallel iterators system and I was like, oh, man, I want to do that. I want to, like, get on a language super early and then be the person who gets to implement that. That would be so cool. <laughs> but, yeah, it's just super cool stuff. It just, I don't know. It's I loved working on Rayon. Those, that was really fun. That was early. But, but part of it is that, like, Rayon evolved out of a bunch of other stuff that never quite fit together. So we did this. One, one part of it is, remember I, I mentioned that Rust evolved a lot over the over time. And I was always thinking about how to enable something like Rayon. That was like a use case. Uh, how to make it work smoothly. And the early versions, like I thought I was convinced, but it like never quite worked the way I would like it to. There was always kind of weird interactions and limitations that because the language hadn't quite settled into like the orthogonal aspects that it has now that lets it fit together. So like when we had garbage collectors, for example, then those GC things couldn't you could sort of make it work so that you could use the GC within the closure, but you could never bring GC data into the closure and access it like in the parallel iterator, because that would require cross-thread GC. And that was something we didn't want to do. And well, I don't remember, but if you go back, I don't know the details, but if you go back to my early blog post, you'll see that I had this like trade hierarchy that was kind of complicated and had like six traits and I don't remember why, but it all had to, I think it had to do with the fact that at that time send had a, we still thought send, which means that send is the trait that says data can be transferred between threads. And back then it used to require that the data was static, so it couldn't have any references into the stack. And that made sense for sending like to a thread that is not connected to you, like an act, like a separate, like a channel, the way we use channels today. For Rayon, that's a drag, because that's exactly what you want to do is access data from your stack. So I had this whole parallel trade hierarchies. And anyway, the point is eventually we like fixed these one by one, these constraints and realized we were coupling things together that didn't need to be coupled. And then suddenly it was like, oh, and now Rayon just works and it just uses send and sync and it's cool. I think the last step was somebody named Pythonesque. I think they suggested removing tick static from send on IRC 
I remember because I got this ping and I was annoyed because I was in the middle of something and I went to read it and I was like, what? Oh, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. We should do that. But. I imagine your days are filled up with meetings and talking to people now because that's kind of how Rust has evolved into just very much like a language that you work with other people to collaborate on. And that's that's just so great. It's just a language that facilitates that and facilitates the, the the culture that is around it. And that is pretty fun. I think the the thing I'm really excited about is how we've been working more and more on building groups focused on a particular task. And I like when they work, like the NLL working group and I mean you're working on the error handling one and it just feels really fun to have like a, a set of four or five or however many people kind of focused. Sometimes it's just two or three, but there's something about separating it out and giving it a name <laughs> and some goals. It feels much better than like the old days when you would go to this big IRC channel and like it's like 22 overlapping conversations. I don't know. It makes a big difference to my mental state. Yeah, it's just so organic as well. So yeah, that's that's a huge difference. Anyways, probably a good time to go ahead and stop here. Thank you so much, Nico. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. This was fun. That concludes our conversation with Nico. You can read his writings on his blog at smallcultfollowing.com slash babysteps. You can also follow him on Twitter at Nico Matsakis. You can follow us at Humans of OSS or send us an email at humansofopensource at gmail.com. The music for the show is composed by Michelle Doe. That concludes this episode of Humans of Open Source. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you in the next one.